Hi, this is Monica Lopez. Before we get to our podcast, I want to let you know that Making Contact is supported mostly by our listeners. We're a nonprofit shop with a small yet mighty team. In other words, a little goes a long way for us, and a little more goes a lot longer. So if you can, please go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks, and here's the show. If every little thing that you did made a difference, would you do things a little different? This is Making Contact, a program that informs, inspires, and moves people to take action. Believe me if I told you you're the reason we are here. Would there be meaning to your breathing if your exhale made the air? College students around the country are entering a new school year. What awaits them are new classes, new students, and hopefully new approaches to old problems. Some students at several prominent historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs as we call them, have asked school administrators to address sexual assault differently. Last year, student protests at Morehouse College, Spelman College, Hampton University, and Howard University aimed to highlight inadequacies in the way sexual assault and rape cases are handled. We're focusing on HBCUs because out of the nearly 5,000 colleges that exist in the U.S., just over 100 are categorized as historically black. Students at these schools, whom are predominantly black, tend to underreport sexual violence and are often not included in national conversations about it. We're interested in amplifying their voices and their particular take on the issue. With us today are a few current and former HBCU students who have a few things to say about the way sexual assault plays out at HBCUs and how to make campus safer for everyone. Let's do some quick introductions. I'm Amos Jackson III. I'm a senior at Howard University. I'm the SGA president there, and I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. I'm Kyla Wright. I'm a senior as well, journalism major at Hampton University, and I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I'm Yvette. I'm from New York. I'm on a book writing sabbatical in Denver right now, and I went to Bennett College in North Carolina. Welcome, guys. I'm your host, Erin Mathewson, and I'm an alum of Howard University. You're listening to Making Contact in collaboration with Bitch Media and Dishonor Roll. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, I'd like to hear from each of our guests about why you decided to attend a historically black college. And for anyone who's not familiar, these are institutions that were established before 1964 with the purpose of educating black Americans when other institutions would not. Students of all races are welcome, but black culture is often celebrated to a high degree at these places. So Amos, let's start with you. Why did you choose Howard? Um... Funny enough, I had no intention of going to an HBCU. Uh, my whole family went to HBCUs, and I was like, no, I want to be different. I want to go to a top-tier institution. I don't want to go to an HBCU. Um, and then, funny enough, I didn't get the ACT score for those institutions that were recruiting me, and so I committed to this small Division three school. And ironically, one Sunday at church, I met this guy. So he invited me to this um Sigma Pi Phi Boule chapter meeting, he set me up by bringing all these prominent Howard alum that lived in Florida. 
And I was like, okay. I called my dad that day, and I was like, I'm going to Howard. So I dealt with racism at a very young age. So I went on a black college tour with my church and fell in love with all the HBCUs from Tennessee State to Hampton and Spelman, every, everywhere. So I knew by about the ninth or 10th grade that I wanted to go to an HBCU. So I got scholarship money, fortunately, to go to Hampton. Hampton gave me the highest scholarship. It was a beautiful campus. They had a top-tier journalism program and everything in between. I knew I wanted to be surrounded by people who looked like me, who acted like me, and who had the same morals and values as me, and I didn't want to succumb to racism for any longer. It was literally the best decision I've made. My children will be attending HBCUs. They don't have a choice. And mm-hmm. that, yeah, that is it. <laughs> That's funny. Yvette, what about you? <laughs> I knew very early on that I wanted to attend a historically black college or university. And so I encountered some struggles when I got to high school and ended up dropping out when I was 16. And HBCUs were the only institutions who were willing to accept someone who took the SAT but did not have a traditional high school diploma. And so I applied to three HBCUs. Uh, The one I decided initially to attend was the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And I attended there for a year and then encountered some money troubles. And so I was actually sitting at home. I had taken a semester off watching CNN, and I saw uh, Bennett College's former president, Dr. Julianne Malvo, just talking about this school I'd never heard of before. And she was just singing all of its praises. Like, if you're a black girl who wants to turn into a black woman and be educated and celebrated, like, this is the school that you should go to. And I'll agree with both of the people who went before me that it's the best decision I've ever made. Well, I'm glad everybody enjoyed their experiences because we all know some people who did not enjoy their experiences at HBCUs. Um, But before we dive into the way sexual assault impacts your campuses, I just wanted to talk about the bigger context we find ourselves in right now. Like, I just feel like we're in this Me Too moment, and I'm wondering how this has affected your conversations on campus. Like, I feel like there's a lot of progressive art and music coming out at the same time as some pretty misogynistic stuff. I still can't get over R. Kelly's single, I admit. Um, But then I wonder if it's countered by songs like Nice For What from Drake. So... I'm just curious, how has all this affected your conversations about sex and sexual assault? What I found since, especially because we're approaching the one-year anniversary of Me Too, is that there are far more people who are willing to have these conversations and to have them publicly. And I think social media has played a big part in that in terms of being able to respond immediately to, say, R. Kelly's terrible 19-minute song, I Admit, or being able to foster a conversation publicly in a way that they may not be able to do in their own families, especially if they're encountering pushback. And so I don't know if Me Too is really the catalyst for that. I think it's been happening prior to that, um, particularly among um, feminists online. But I think that we are shifting national consciousness about what sexual violence looks like, what sexual assault looks like, and the way that institutions work to protect people who are already powerful and how they turn out the powerless. And I agree. Like, um, I think... um... It's just, it's so sad that Me Too was started by a black woman, but it didn't yeah. really garner support until a white and no woman one happens. knew. And mm. no one knew until a white woman said something about Me Too. Mm. So that's even something that even goes into a deeper aspect of, like, HBCUs. 
similar to the uh, political engagement, civic engagement of black people that stemmed from Donald Trump and people like him being elected into office in that whole Roy Moore situation, um, there was a silver lining in it because it also made people more aware that, like, if the if a guy got elected president of the United States, it has to be happening at least down the street from you. I think it's still. I think we're going to see a um, response to that too, following Me Too and all of these prominent people that um, you used to look up to, and now you're like, wow, how can I not condemn and really change the conversation? Yeah. And I would just add that change the conversation is something we're trying to do right here. Like, let's talk about the dating scene first, since according to the Center for Disease Control, just over 50% of female victims of rape reported being assaulted by an intimate partner, and just over 40% by an acquaintance. And I feel like at HBCUs in particular, this conversation gets tied up into morality, um, because I feel like a lot of the, Mm. the schools are kind of like unofficially connected to or, you know, very openly celebrate various forms of Christianity. Yvette, what do you, um, when you were an undergrad, and if we, I guess Yvette <laughs> and I should say, I, well, I don't want to speak for Yvette, I was an undergrad uh, a little bit over, about 13 years ago. Uh, Yvette, what about you? Yeah, I finished undergrad six years ago, okay. so it has been a while. But I attended a same-sex college, and so the dating was a little difficult unless you wanted to venture to another campus. So a lot of the dating was happening across campuses, or mostly Bennett girls were going to North Carolina A&T because our college didn't allow men on campus. And when they did come on campus, they were being harassed by security. They were not allowed to go into our dormitory rooms if you lived on campus. They had to stay in the parlor. And so if you had a male visitor who wanted to come by, he would, like, become a spectacle. And so, so much of what they consider dirt needs to be done off campus or out of the eye of the administrations. And so a lot of the relationships that that I had when I was in college were very private. But I think on the flip side of that, I'm very fortunate that I never encountered sexual violence when I was in college. But had I, I don't know if I would have been comfortable saying, hey, I've been assaulted, given that I was was basically lambasted for having fun as a college student. Amos, you said that things had changed at Howard. How is sex talked about among students and administrators now? I've seen it change big time from my freshman year to now going into my senior year. Um, We have a lot of more panels. Um, We have organizations that are strictly based on um, safe sex, like Safe Spaces, HU. Our campus does a lot of um, sexual assault stuff. And a lot of the fraternities and sororities on campus are definitely tackling that. And even from an administrative standpoint, we're actually launching this new um, campus safety program regarding sexual assault, dating violence, and interpersonal violence. It's like on every syllabus now. And so it's um, we're actually moving in a good direction towards making Howard University safe for all students. Um, the student government is playing a big part in that as far as um, promoting new policies. Um, we're actually doing um, a program with EverFi where students will have to take mandatory sexual assault um, prevention training, Title IX training, diversity and inclusion training um, before every semester online. If you're just tuning in, this is Making Contact, radioproject.org, and the Dishonor Roll Reporting Project. You were just hearing the voice of Amos Jackson, 
a senior at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Before him was Yvette Dion of Bitch Media and an alum of Bennett College in North Carolina. Next up is Kyla Wright, who's a senior at Hampton University in Virginia. So, Kyla, what's going on at Hampton? So, Hampton is definitely going through it right now when it comes to the sexual assault realm. So, as far as Amos talked about at Howard and having sexual assault seminars every semester and having it on your syllabus, we're definitely not there yet. And that's hopefully a direction that we're headed to, but we're not anywhere close as of right now. And even I've heard a lot of young women on campus talk about going to the health center about having a sore throat or having a chronic headache or something. And they end up turning it around and asking them like, oh, are you sexually active? You need to take a STD test. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I have a headache or the fact that my throat hurts. So why are you asking me about my sexual activity? And then that turns into judgment. And and it's very uncomfortable. And even when you answer the questions, the reactions, you can see the reactions in the nurse's face if it's like, oh, I'm not sexually active. And they're like, oh, good, keep it that way. Or, yeah, I'm sexually active. Oh, well, why? Like, it's just, it's very weird. It's very uncomfortable. The only resource that we really have the students are semi-comfortable with and just now becoming more comfortable with is the Student Counseling Center, which has a program called the Peer Advocates, which I'll actually be the president of this upcoming school year. And it's a organization or it's a program that specifically is geared towards sexual assault, dating violence, stalking, domestic violence, etc. And it's that organization that everyone kind of wants to be a part of or wants to talk to, but at the same time wants to shy away from because it's all the taboo topics that everyone wants to keep quiet about as well. So we're trying to make it more of an open dialogue because it shouldn't be something that's kept quiet on campus, especially because it happens so often. And in my research, I've come to find out that in the average four-year tenure, one in five women are sexually assaulted on a college campus. Wow. I'm glad to hear that you're going to lead the peer advocates. Um, I'm wondering if you could actually share a little bit more about your experience and how you got to know all these services so well. So um, my freshman year at Hampton, unfortunately, I was a part of that statistic. So I was assaulted on campus by someone who I thought was my friend, someone who was a prominent figure on campus, someone who I was very comfortable with. So at that time, I was extremely like I shut down from the world, like I shut down from everyone, everything. I was not talking about it. I was not even admitting the fact that it happened. Like I was just like, I don't really know what it is, but it's not that I'm just I don't know. I'm just not going to talk about it. And then after I finally started talking to my parents and started talking to really close friends and family members, I started figuring out that oh, and doing research, I started figuring out that obviously I wasn't alone and it wasn't just me. So I had to try to figure out in some way, shape, or form how to be that voice and how to come out about this situation because it was happening to other people. And obviously they weren't speaking out about it either. And this is when I began to, well, I didn't report it until about four months after it happened. And then even after I did, so I started to learn the process and how it worked on campus as far as reporting it. And if you got a case or if you didn't get a case and how Hampton solve the situation or if they didn't solve the situation and all that. And in my sophomore year, I created a platform called Operation SASH. SASH is an acronym for Sexual Assault Stops Here. And I 
competed in the Miss Black and Gold scholarship pageant, and that was hey. my platform throughout the entire. Yes, Amos. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my platform during the entire pageant, and I placed second. So I stood by that platform, and even though I hadn't actually won the pageant, I still used that platform to help other women on campus. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I'm curious, and I'm, I'm going to open this up to everybody else, but were, were you believed, like when you first came forward, uh, do you feel like people believed you, or did you feel like you had to like, prove something to the people asking you questions and like that you, what, the experience you had was real? Yeah, no. Like, no one believed me. Even after mm. I finally came to terms with it, I was in a group of about eight friends. They were, like, my main friends. We all stayed, stayed on the same hall. And it was like, when I came out to my friends and told them what happened, it was like, mm, did it? Really? Uh, okay. Okay, we'll help you. Okay. And then after it started to get real, like, it seemed like the more comfortable I got with it, the more uncomfortable they got with it. And so I ended up losing all my friends freshman year. They were like, no, I don't really think this is how this is supposed to go. Um, I don't really know if this did happen to you, if you're trying to get attention. Or, I'm like, what do you mean this isn't the way to go? Like, I reported it to the university. I'm trying to get him kicked off campus. Like, whatever. And everything I was trying to do to keep my support system strong, it backfired on me, honestly. So it was them. And then after I got, so when you report the incident to the Title IX office or to HUPD, they have an investigation with you and the person you say was the assailant, and they decide whether or not you get a case. So I had to go in front of a board of administrators and talk about what happened. He was there. He was in the room. I ended up finding out that, that wasn't supposed to happen that way. He was in the he room? supposed to be in the same room as me. Yes, yeah, so it was very, it was really weird. It was the most awkward thing ever. Yeah. Mm. So that happened, and it was like the administration were, like, grilling me. They're just like, what did you have on? Well, why were you at his house? Well, why were you this? Well, oh, why were you no. that? And I'm like, what? Wait, mm. hold on, pause, stop. What? It was a very alone time in my life so I'm glad obviously I'm not there anymore because during that time I literally couldn't talk about it without busting out in tears without crying and having anxiety attacks so clearly I've grown which is I think the greatest thing that has happened out of this whole situation that I've grown and that I can help other people it sounds like what I what I learned from Kyla is that she had to kind of prove herself to her friends and to the administration and I'm wondering for Yvette and Amos like at your campuses did you find that the student body is supportive when they hear about sexual assault cases? And then, you know, I'm wondering if, if your friends or people you know who have have um, experienced sexual assault, if they have felt comfortable um, in the, you know, the administration space and also the social space at campus. Um, I can say at Howard, um, a lot of women aren't as inclined to report because they have friends or they know people that have reported and haven't seen an output. Like my mentee, like one of the closest women to me on campus, that happened to her. I was the first person she called. I took her to the interpersonal violence office. And because she was afraid to report, and I was like, no, like as a student, as a student employee of the university, like as soon as you tell me, and now I'm required to report it myself. And so like now I have to. I know that I may break our mentee-mentor relationship trust here, but I have to, and I think it'll serve you well with me doing so. And I hate the fact that it had to take somebody happening to me close for me to really, really, really put my hands to the plow to make it a 
a priority for my administration and for other student leaders. Um, but again, I think that we're moving in the right direction with that, like looking to hire more Title IX investigators. Because I think one of the things that really hurts HBCUs, especially when it comes to issues like these, is that the resources we have are very slim. So instead of trying to find creative ways, we overcompensate and aren't honest about the issues that we have going on in our campuses. Because um, there's creative ways to um, assist survivors and to discipline assailants. What about you, Yvette? Well, my college is a little complicated because we haven't reported a sexual assault in nearly five years, which based on national statistics is inaccurate. And there, it's it's impossible that there is no sexual assault that has happened on Bennett College's campus in five years. But what that indicates to me is that we either don't have the proper protocols in place for victims of sexual violence to come forward and feel as if they'll be believed and that justice will be served, or these cases are being swept under the rug. And there's no evidence either way. But I can recall, um, especially in when I was at the beginning of my undergraduate career, there were always whispers and rumors about students who had been sexually violated, but it was always happening among student groups or among groups of friends. It was never happening on an administrative level. Like we were never having town hall meetings about sexual violence. I can recall one specific student in particular who said that she had been raped and the next semester she didn't come back and we never saw her again. And so, so much of the conversation around sexual assault and rape and how colleges handle it does, as Amos said, has to do with resources. So Bennett is a school with 500 students. They rely mostly on student tuition to to fund the institution. 90% of the time we are either facing financial probation or we're on financial probation. And so when it comes to the strategic way that they allocate resources, it's as if they don't see curbing sexual assault and making sure that those who have been assaulted have the proper resources as a institutional priority. Wow. We've kind of discussed that like sexual assault goes underreported. Do you think that has anything to do with the fact that a, you know, black people are already overrepresented in the prison system and the jail and you don't you're not trying to add to that? And B, there's kind of like this family, quote unquote, culture at HBCUs. And so it feels bad to kind of like tell on your brother, your sister. Do you think that's part of what goes on? Uh, Yes, absolutely. I think reputation for HBCUs is everything, primarily because they are underfunded. And so the things that administrations choose to prioritize and focus on are designed to increase enrollment. And so... One of my um, professors always says that most HBCUs run like a black church, and that is very much the case at Bennett. And so they approach it as we put on a united front, even if we have inner turmoil. And so you are never supposed to speak badly of the school. You don't speak badly of other students. At Bennett, we call each other sisters. If sexual assault is happening, and based on national statistics, it probably is, why they are not reporting it. Yeah, I think that also plays into regional placement of institutions as well. Um, because I know like a lot of the students that we attract to go to Howard are coming from large cities and a lot of progressive cities. And so 
we've actually seen um, an increase in reporting over the last couple of years, which is a double-edged sword because you're like, we're glad people are reporting, but we're, we're also sad that people have to report something. Right. And so it's one of those things to where even at Howard, um, you still have that aspect of um, keeping it in-house and what happens at home stays at home, and we don't want to um, affect uh, this black man's future, this black woman's future. But they affected yours. And so um, you have to understand that, like, no, we really need to have these tough conversations. And I really think um, even before you even reach the institution, because a lot of the times, or a lot of students that we've, like, we've surveyed on campus, it's like the first time they've openly talked about sex with an adult or older than them, an elder person, was in college. So for my last question, I just wanted to hear from each of you one thing, just one, that you are really hopeful that this will help change things, bring about more change on campus. Like if it's a policy, if it's a conversation, whatever it is. I would just like Bennett to have one town hall. Every school have one town hall. Every HBCU have one town hall that allows students to voice how they feel, particularly around issues that are vital and that must stop. And I know until that happens, until students' voices are heard or valued or respected, I think these issues will continue to happen with either the administration not knowing or not caring or not being invested in making sure that the students are safe. I would definitely say the dialogue because when the times the town hall meeting happened, everyone was outraged and everyone was upset and everyone had something to say as far as students. And now it's kind of died down and no one's talking about it anymore and that's that. So I don't want it to be just a temporary upset, a temporary conversation. Like this needs to be ongoing until something actually happens. I would love to see men on our campus just listen. Mm. Um, Men on our campus listen, understand and seek information on how they can be an ally to women on our campus. Like, I would love to see that. Yeah. I would add that generally listening, sitting, and acting upon comfortable and uncomfortable truths are a key part of making campuses safer. Um, Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. And I just want to thank all of you so much. Kyla Wright, senior from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. Um, Amos Jackson, also a senior at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where I'm also an alum. And Yvette Dion, editor-in-chief of Bitch Media and alumna of Bennett College and the co-producer of this panel. Before we close out the show, I want to mention that we reached out to Howard, Hampton, and Bennett to get their responses to the comments made by Amos, Kyla, and Yvette. Listeners can see the full statements on our website, but I'll summarize them here. Hampton University outlined its policies and initiatives around sexual assault and ended with, quote, Once a complaint is made, Hampton University does not allow an alleged victim and perpetrator to be questioned together, except during a sexual misconduct and discrimination hearing, unless otherwise requested. They added that, quote, By federal law, Hampton University cannot discuss the specifics of any complaint or case, but it is important to note that Hampton University is concerned about the dignity of individuals and has had a sexual assault policy in place long before the federal mandate. The statement from Howard University highlighted various resources available to students and programs it has implemented to prevent sexual assault, promote student awareness of Title IX, 
and support survivors of sexual assault. Lastly, Bennett College shared a statement about the programs there, emphasizing that the school's resources to promote sexual assault awareness and support increased in 2013. In response to whether the school underreported incidents of sexual assault, the statement said, quote, Allegations that Bennett College has not reported any sexual assaults in the past five years are inaccurate. Reports on students who seek assistance through counseling services will not be reflected in public reports issued by the Clary Act. To hear the entire unedited discussion, go to radioproject.org. Thanks for tuning in to Making Contact and our special roundtable episode in the Dishonor Roll Reporting Collaborative. Thanks especially to Bitch Media's Yvette Dion and Andy Zeisler for their editorial input. Thanks to Joellen Kaiser and the Media Consortium for a mini-grant for our Dishonor Roll participation. Special thanks for recording facilities at the studios of WPFW in D.C., WDET in Denver, ESPN in New York, KGNU in Denver, and recordists Brianna Tinsley, Sam Bubin, Dave Ashton, Tim Russo, Robin Smith, and Katia Stitt. Thanks to Climbing Poetry for the opening poem and for the music by Jazar and Scanglobe. I'm Erin Mathieson in New York for Making Contact, www.radioproject.org. Music